This morning, let us hear the words of our King in Matthew chapter 5. I invite you to turn with me there, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're in our second week of our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at a bit of the outline of the whole of the sermon, as well as looked at the Beatitudes. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16, and in those verses, we're going to consider salt and light. One of the privileges that we have in the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus is an incredible teacher. He gives us uh, such vibrant images, images that we can reflect and consider. This morning, we're going to spend a good deal of time thinking about two words, salt and light, and the way that Jesus uses them in this passage and uh, it, it really is a privilege that the teaching is so simple, right? What Jesus says is very straightforward and even matter of fact. And yet the image that he calls to our mind by, by teaching in this way is profound and, and something that we can meditate and think upon for a great deal of time, many hours and weeks and months and years, we can reflect upon these images of salt and light and why he uses them as descriptions for the people who are he make up his kingdom. Of course, as we do so, we can run off in error and, and push metaphors too far. And so the whole time we submit these ideas and these meditations to the counsel of the word. But I would encourage you, let your mind be full this morning. Let your imagination run and then be corrected and, and focused by the word this morning. This morning, I would ask us before we read the scripture to consider this question. Last week, we looked at a character of a people, a character of the citizenship of the kingdom of God, beginning with poverty of spirit. So the question is this, what is the effect of having a people who have received the kingdom of God, who, who by grace have entered into the eternal and blessed kingdom, a, a people who long with rejoicing and gladness for their reward in heaven. What is the effect of, of that people being in the midst of this world? A people who have received the kingdom of heaven and entered into it, Yet being in the midst of this world, what is the effect? Martin Lloyd-Jones asks the question this way. What if the church engaged in Christian living with evangelistic fervor? I'll say it again. What if the church engaged in Christian living with evangelistic fervor? Here's what we contend to do. We contend to think of evangelism as something that is added to the Christian life, some gift that the Spirit gives us so that we might be evangelistic, or some deed that we would go about in addition to the faithful Christian life. What Lloyd-Jones is suggesting, and I believe what is really the crooks of the teaching of Jesus in the passage that we'll read in just a moment, is that where we are often told that to work up a zeal to make disciples, a fervor for evangelism, that if we would take that zeal and rather focus it on a zeal for a godly life, a zeal for Christian living according to the way of Christ, even as it's laid out for us in these Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, that itself would be evangelistic, something the world 
has never truly seen before? It's a terrific question. Essentially, what if the disciples of Jesus understood that a life lived in pursuit of Jesus is the most attractional and winsome means by which to make Jesus known in our community? It reminds me of when I came back from Mongolia the first time that I realized that the number one thing that the global church needs from the church in Brevard County, and particularly the church, the disciples at Cross Point Coast, the number one thing that is needed is that we would be disciples, that we right here would follow after Christ and everything then follows from that place. Let's consider Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Please follow along with me. You are, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are, Jesus says, the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Heavenly Father, we confess this morning that you are in heaven. You are the God of all things. There is none higher. And yet you have come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, drawn near, up next to sinners, and you have spoken a word about a place we have not been, about a way that we have not walked in. And you have walked it in our midst. And we have come to love your way. Lord, I pray that this morning you would impress upon us the beauty of what it is when a people walk in the way of the king. I pray that as you impress that upon us, that you would do the work of transformation in us this morning, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. In the name of our king, we pray. Amen. In this passage, we have these images of salt and light, these two images and metaphors which Jesus gives to the disciples and citizens of the kingdom to describe our mindset in the world, how we go about our life Together, And I say together uh, necessarily because in both cases, at the beginning of both of these metaphors that Jesus holds out to us, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Both times the word you is plural and it's emphatic. It's, it's actually something along the lines of you. Yes, you are the salt of the earth. I, one of the ways that I often think of the word you when it's plural in the scriptures is you together are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. In John 15, 8, it says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That by this the Father is glorified in that by entrance into our kingdom, we are actually transformed to bear the fruit of the kingdom. If we walk in the way of the kingdom, there would be a way that is about us. And so prove to be my disciples in the midst of a watching world. 
salt, and light. We consider these. We're going to look at each one of them in detail. But for now, let's just notice that that there's actually a bit of a contrast in these two images. Salt. Salt is necessarily restraining. It is necessarily negative in its restraint. It's, It's preventing decay. Isn't that what salt does? I think that in the Christian life, this saltiness, this necessary restraint and prevention of decay is really to walk in repentance. It's sort of that negative work of faith to admit and to confess that we are prone to wander. There's a saltiness even about what we did. There's certainly a countercultural something about what Joel led us in just a few moments ago, right? When we are silent, first of all, that's utterly countercultural, right? When, name one other time that anyone in your week led you in actual all the way silence and then called you to confess that you are broken before your God. There's a saltiness, a prevention of decay that happens when, when we admit who we are in our sinful nature apart from the work of redemption and transformation in Christ. And then there's light, on the other hand, and light is, contrastingly, gloriously positive. It's engaging. It's winsome. And I think that in contrast to walking in repentance, light is walking in worship. As a people who have been redeemed, we walk in the worship of our God. And, and what greater worship than to say, God, in you I have found another way, a way of I've repented from my way and I've turned to your way and I'll walk in it and I find it to be beautiful and praiseworthy and glorious, the way of the King. So let's take a moment to go back and consider these two metaphors. We'll begin with salt and ask the question, what is salt? If we're going to puzzle out a bit of what Jesus is talking about when he says, you are the salt of the earth, we should ask, what is salt? And and there's at least two things about salt. Salt is a preservative, right? It's preventing further corruption, further decay. It's a preservative and it's a flavor enhancer. It, It makes palatable that which is bland and difficult to swallow, all right? I'm going to share with you Mark Schladorn's life verse, all right? Uh, Mark, I'm not sure if you knew this was your life verse, but I've heard you say it so many times. Job 6, 6, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Amen? All right, I thought I was going to get an amen from Mark that time, uh, but uh, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? It makes that which is flavorless flavorful. It draws out in our mouth a desire for something that we might not have a desire for another way, right? It is both a preservative and a flavor enhancer. Let's consider the preserving nature of salt. In a, on a website called about.com, they offer this helpful bit about the preservative nature of salt. It says this, basically salt works by drying food, Salt absorbs water from the food, so it draws out the water, making the environment too dry to support harmful mold and bacteria. That's wonderful. There's something proverbial about what Jesus gives us because he he lets us think about this for a a little bit and and consider, and and there's something beautiful about this 
being told that we are salt and that we, we, we draw out from the environment the things so that the environment itself won't support decay and corruption. Salt changes the environment. For the believer to have this sort of effect, we have to ask, do you believe that the environment of the world is an environment of sin and corruption and decay? I mean, you have to get that first, right? Why would you want to change the environment if you're liking it quite nicely? If actually, if you consider the, the way of your life, there's very little of your environment that you just don't just go all the way in and enjoy and then show up on Sunday and do this like repentance and worship thing and then go back to enjoying the environment of the world in which we swim. There must come a moment where salt looks at the world and says, you know what, there's something not right here. There's something corrupt. There's something decaying in the world. What is your view of the world? Do you have a proper biblical understanding of the doctrine of the fall? That's the teaching of the fall. Do you believe that God made the world in perfection? That God made Adam and Eve and blessed them with life? Do you believe that God gave Adam and Eve a perfect way to live, but they rejected that way and chose instead to rebel against the kingdom of our Lord? Do you believe that because of their sin, humanity and all of creation has fallen into decay and death? Do we have a, a right thinking about the world in which we live and even how, biblically speaking, we got here? The world in which we live is not the world as God created it. It's an environment of sin and corruption and decay. We have to understand that salt changes the environment. And to do so, we have to understand that the environment in which we live is broken. Secondly, we have to understand that salt gathers in clumps, but salt scatters into the meat. Let's get an accurate view of what salt is in the Middle East about which Jesus is speaking. Consider this photo of a clump of salt from the Dead Sea. Now, as I'm looking at that, we're talking, we're not talking about nice little salt crystals and a little Morton ladies uh, underneath of an umbrella with salt raining down from the sky. That's not the salt that we're talking about. Now, that's great salt. I would highly recommend it if you're having something that is unpalatable otherwise. But this is the salt that Jesus has in view. The salt about which Jesus is speaking is found in clumps containing mostly salt, but also mixed with other, other minerals. So once the salt in the clump is used up, the clump of impurities that remains is useless. What good is it? The purpose of salt is to get salt out of it, to put salt into the environment. And if there's no salt in the clump, it's worthless. It's useless. Salt, though, while it gathers into a clump, is also worthless if it remains that way. Salt that's gathered into a clump finds its usefulness as it rubs up against the environment and begins to wear off onto it as it's scattered about and throughout. For salt to work, it must move up close to meat and scatter about throughout the meat, absorb the moisture, and change the environment. One of the ways to think of that in our midst is saltiness works household on household. Saltiness works life on life. Has your household drawn up next to a household? 
Have you drawn up next to decay and suffering and brokenness? If you haven't, you're just a salt clump sitting on a shelf. But if you have, that saltiness is working into those places. Let me also suggest that saltiness doesn't work as an institution quite that well. Saltiness works better life on life, not institution on culture. So when we think of the church as salt, we shouldn't think of like Cross Point Coast Inc. You know what I mean? Cross Point Coast with its logo in the culture, affecting the culture and changing it for Christ. It's, It's not what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about salt. To to get a better picture of that, imagine the work of salt in decaying meat. All right? Kind of got to get real for a second. Salt works in a product that otherwise is decaying. For meat to put off decay, it must remove corruption and decay. In the life of the disciples, we know that this is the fruit of faith and repentance. That's really what salt is doing, is it's calling to faith, it's calling to repentance, a life of repentance, and a a call to personal repentance and faith is essential for the effectiveness of our saltiness. Both are essential. Certainly an effect of our salt would be that sin and corruption will constantly be rooted out among us. If we are a salty people, then that which is decay would be put off from among us. Is the culture of our church and households hostile to the corrupting effects of sin? Consider, that's a question for us. Think on that. That's what salt does. It makes the environment hostile to corruption and decay. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing more hostile than sin to sin than repentance than to call sin, sin, rebellion against our God and say, no, we turn from this. It's wrong, and that was the path in which I once walked. Follow after Christ. It's not enough that we would, on the other hand, simply be nice people. There's no hope for preservation of persons, households, society, or culture if we continue in in rebellious corruption or self-righteousness. We aren't just gravy in the culture that makes rancid meat taste nice. We aren't nice people. We're salty people. We're just not, we're not trying to make things just more palatable. We're trying to be, exist as households and persons in the midst of our communities so that they would not decay. You see, we're not just nice people as defined by the world. We're transformed people, people of repentance, putting off decay, changing the meat all together. Now, salt is also a flavor enhancer. It is better with salt in it. Consider this definition also uh, found on, on another website. It says this, that extra salt has other effects as well outside of simply making things more salty. Particularly, adding salt to foods helps certain molecules in the foods become more easily released into the air, thus helping the aroma of the food, which is important in our perception of taste. Here's what that's saying. Salt makes stuff taste better. Some of you are like, I know, my doctor said I can't have it, and I don't like eating anymore. 
Yeah, I understand. Basically, salt suppresses some flavors like bitterness, and it causes increased aroma for other flavors and creates a pleasant contrast to sweetness. You've heard sweet and savory, right? Salt helps to create that contrast for us as we enjoy delicacies of food. Salt can take the mundane things of life, even the bitterness of life, and changes our experience of it altogether. Remember, when we're talking about salt, we're not talking about salt. We're talking about the way of the kingdom. The way of Christ takes a life that is otherwise mundane or unbearable, and gives it an enhancement. Consider mercy as the way of Christ. Consider the effect of mercy upon the one who is suffering in guilt and shame. How much of our life is an experience of guilt and shame, and mercy comes alongside? Consider purity upon the one who is stuck in the filthiness of and addictions that are so prevalent in our world. How much of our world is a struggle with uh, addictions and other filth? And salt comes alongside and speaks of purity. Another way, another satisfaction for the soul and peace. Consider the effect of peace upon the one that's caught in strife and anger and bitterness. Anger outside, yeah, but what about anger inside? And the one who comes with a word of peace, that there is a kingdom and a king and a reconciler. Salt speaks that word. We know what beautiful is, right? Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The things that are reflective of our Lord himself and his kingdom. There was a reason why this sermon series entitled what it is. There is the way of the king and it's good and it's beautiful and it has a a salty, flavor-enhancing work in our life to cut out the bitterness and make this life palatable, even preparatory for the kingdom of heaven. Salt draws out these flavors in our life. Now, Jesus, in speaking about salt, he doesn't just say you are the salt of the earth. He also speaks of saltiness being lost in the clump. And the question, can its saltiness be restored? Are we salty or are we worthless? There's a tone of judgment in the trampling under people's feet. The disciple is, by very definition, salt. So he lays out the character of the kingdom and the people who are participants in the kingdom. And then after he lays that out, he says, you are the salt of the earth. The disciple is by very nature the salt of the earth. If you're not, you're not a citizen of the kingdom. Where do disciples therefore get their saltiness? Where do we get it? Well, Jesus and his gospel are the greatest reality of saltiness in our life to Understand this, we have to understand the sin and corruption and decay into which Jesus entered. We have to understand that we are all sinners with our sin, corruption, and decay. Jesus entered into that reality, a reality of a broken and sinful and decaying world. He brought salt to live here. And Jesus curses sin with death, and yet Jesus came to dwell among us. It's that cursed reality into which Jesus 
comes. Jesus, who is himself very God, took on flesh and became a man to dwell in the midst of sinners. The very pure salt clump came to dwell in the midst of decay. This is the story of the incarnation. Jesus, alone, perfect, free of spiritual corruption, not only taking upon himself flesh, but taking him upon himself death for those who would place their faith in him. For those who rubbed up next to him, he took our decay upon himself and suffered the righteous punishment of that decay, of that sin, that death in himself on the cross. This is the saltiness of the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus dwelling in the midst of sinners, giving himself to redeem us from sin and corruption. It's the gospel from which we get our understanding of what it means to be salt in the world, to go and as a transformed people, by means of this gospel of Jesus, to be therefore salt in the midst of a world that is in need of Jesus just like we are. Jesus speaks of it when he speaks of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's a hungering and thirsting for saltiness. As Jesus transforms us, we not only become salt, but we take on saltiness. We don't only become purified, we become people who are purifying you see, salt is what we are. Salt is the blessing of the beatitude. Salt is the effect of who we are in Christ, according to the promise. And salt is salty wherever it is. Now, interestingly, salt technically can't lose its saltiness. I'm not sure exactly what Jesus is talking about. If salt loses its saltiness, salt doesn't become not salt. It's salt or it's not, right? And I think that's the point. Salt is salt, therefore salt is salty. A disciple is a disciple, therefore disciples bear the fruit of discipleship in our communities. Perhaps Jesus is saying that for some who think themselves citizens of the kingdom and yet do not treasure the gospel such that we walk in the way that reflects a a preserving and enhancing way of his kingdom, that perhaps these are imposters, not disciples or citizens of the kingdom at all. Of course, the other implication for us, for we who have believed but are questioning our effectiveness in the community, our saltiness in the community, perhaps the other implication for us of Jesus's words is a warning to the disciples of becoming diluted and impure. How does it happen? Two ways, at least. One way is to lose our saltiness in the world is to become isolated from the world. Consider it this way. The salt can stay clumped together and be technically disciples, a people of faith in Christ, but bear no fruit of discipleship in our community. To have no preserving or enhancing effect in the world because they have no contact with the world, you see. To become isolated from the world is to deny the beauty of Christ's incarnation. God You, who are salt itself, came to dwell with us, to draw up next to us. Jesus came to the world to bring the good news of the kingdom. But these disciples have stepped out of the world altogether. And so it's like they haven't lost their salt, but they've lost their saltiness. Like salt on a shelf is technically salt, 
but it isn't salty until it rubs itself into decaying meat. Of course, the other option is, instead of isolation from the world, is to become too much like the world. The salt can become diluted so that it begins to take on the flavors of the corruption itself. And this is so very often the case in our lives, in our households, in our churches. That we become so diluted, we begin to taste like decay rather than transformation. Like the salt rock that has an outer shell of saltiness, but inside is dirt and muck and clay. Again, this is why we are in such great need of repentance as we go out of our bedrooms and into our households, out of our our dorm and into our campuses, out of our houses and into our workplaces, out of our community groups and into our communities and out of our celebration services and into our culture. We go as a people of repentance, casting off the decay, taking on the way of Christ, and so bear saltiness when we rub up against our community, one another, in our church and in our households and in our neighborhoods. This is the way of salt. Salt, by nature, must be also salty or it's worthless. Now let's spend a few moments considering light before we come back to wrap these two things together. Light, uh, is beautifully described actually in a book called The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a lion. His name is Aslan. Some of you are familiar with this story. It's written by C.S. Lewis, and Aslan is a Jesus figure. He's a savior, a type for a redeemer in the story. And in the story, C.S. Lewis describes Aslan in this poem. Right, wrong will be right when Aslan comes into sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. What's the beauty of spring? Sunshine. Light. Has Jesus come into sight? Have we heard his roar? Has he put death to death? And has he brought life and immortality to light? See, the whole point of the Beatitudes is for Jesus to declare that the kingdom is not something merely far off, but rather his kingdom is for this ragtag band that we find in the scriptures right here and that we find in our church this morning, who have been utterly transformed by the sighting of a blessed light. A king and his way has shown And the first evidence that his kingdom rule is the reign of God in our lives is the life of these blessed disciples in the midst of the world. What Jesus comes to in verses 13 through 16, the section on salt and light, is the fact that if the light of God's kingdom's reign has truly entered the life of the disciples, there must be a shining Just like if he's entered our lives, there must be a saltiness. If he has entered our lives and we have entered his kingdom, then there must be a shining. So let's ask this question again. What does light do? It's kind of a funny question. What does light do? Light is. And if you look at what Jesus says here, you are the light of the world. And so be a light. What more do you say? You are a light. As Lloyd-Jones puts it, we are something before we begin to act as something. 
We will make a mess of our shining if we are not first transformed by Christ. We must see Christ, behold Christ, have faith in Christ and be transformed by Christ in order to become something before we try to be and act like something. We are something because we've been transformed from one thing into another, from a people who dwelt in darkness to a people who have seen a great light. If we try to act like light while ignoring the gospel, at least three things will be true. First, we will be self-righteous. Because if we've not been transformed by Christ, all that we have to shine is what? Ourselves. Let me shine me and my self-righteousness in the world. And if we're not transformed by Christ, the second thing we will be, we'll be moralists. Because Christless Christianity is a Christianity without grace, without hope, and without redemption. Well, what is Christianity left with if it doesn't have grace, hope, and redemption? Law. That's all that's left. And since we can't keep the whole law, we're going to pick and choose some of the law, which fits our fancy, that fits well with our self-righteousness, and so we will become moralists if we try to be light without the transforming work of Christ. And if we try to be light without the transforming work of Christ, we will also be hypocrites. And this is just a logical conclusion to the other two. Not only are we incapable of keeping God's law, we're equally incapable of keeping our moralistic list of behaviors of our own devising. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You put together the list of things that you would be like, and you do a great job of being like that when you're together with church people. And you just hope they never come to your house. Because we're moralistic hypocrites. No matter how we manipulate God's law to fit our moralistic leanings, we can't even fit our own conscience. No light is worthy of shining but the light of Christ because only his light is actually light-giving. Without the transforming work of Christ, apart from the process of transformation described in the Beatitudes, through the, the, through the disciple is changed and from poor and mourning to righteous and rejoicing in the kingdom. All that's left is pitiful light, shining of self-righteousness, moralism, and hypocrisy. It shines like a black light that leads to hell. I didn't make that up. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's what it's like to try to act like light without having the light of Christ. Light is what we are because the light of what Christ is has made us so. And so we ask, what does the light therefore being transformed? Having the light of Christ shown in us so that we glow, what does that light do? Well, that's really simple. What does light do? Light shines, right? One word, it simply shines. Why did God light the light, which is the disciples together? So that it would shine. If you look at the passage, it's what it says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people who light a lamp put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all the house. It shines. That's what light 
does. The light that only Christians have is God and his gospel, the intimate knowledge of God, the life-giving hope of the gospel. And it's the only life-preserving, life-giving reality. I love 1 Peter 2.9. It'd be a great one to write in the margins here. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, this is the work of God. He's making a new people, a kingdom people. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you know what you are when you proclaim the excellencies of light? Light. You shine. What do we shine? The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, what light does is it reflects the light of the true light. We have a great example of this in the scriptures. John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was the light who reflected the true light. In John 1, 6 through 9, it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Do you know what John the Baptist was? Not the light. And as not the light, he shined the light. It's beautiful. He's one of the greatest examples that we have in the scriptures. Listen, you are not the light, and yet Jesus is right to say you are the light of the world. Because the true light, which gives light, has shown in our lives so that we shine with his radiance. Jesus literally says, you, yes, even you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world because the light of the king has made himself known in the citizens of the kingdom. The light shines. There's another image, though, in light. John picks it up especially in his first and second and third John, his letters there. Also in his gospel, he picks up on this, light walks in holiness. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We walk in the way of the light. We walk in the way of holiness. We walk in what? The way of the king and his kingdom, what he's giving us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's so very important. Remember, you are not the light Jesus is, but insofar as we walk in him, insofar as we are his disciples, insofar as we walk in the light, we have the light of life. We who have the light of life are therefore, according to the king's own decree, the light of the world. By the blessing of Christ, you are the light of the world, citizens of the kingdom. Now, I find that to be tremendously encouraging. I find a great deal of joy reflecting upon these things, but I need to offer us one harsh reality before we close, a bit of a challenge, the harsh reality of salt and light in a world of darkness and decay. Remember the image, right? The image is salt works in rotten meat. 
A.W. Pink puts it this way. This figure plainly warns the minister of his pressing need of fortitude. Why? Why? I mean, just be salt. It's quite nice. It is salt and not sugar candy he is to employ. Something which the ungodly will be more inclined to spit out than to swallow with a smile. Something which is calculated to bring water to the eyes rather than laughter to the lips. Remember that salt works when worked into decaying meat. Now, how well do you think it's going to go over in our communities when our community realizes that Jesus taught us to think of the world as decaying flesh and ourselves as light, as salt. That's not palatable. It doesn't sound nice. Who wants to be called decaying meat by nature? Who wants to be told that we need something outside of ourselves to root out that which is decaying inside ourselves? But then let us remember that apart from Christ, we ourselves are by nature sinners lost in the world. A.W. Pink also says, Hereby each one may see that what he, him, he is in himself by nature, depraved and corrupt, as unsavory flesh and stinking carrion in the nostrils of God, or else what need of salt? Why would we need salt? Of the earth, in the midst of the earth, if not apart from the saltiness of our Savior, we're stinking carrion. But with the purifying, preserving work of the gospel, something completely else appears light in a dark world. Let us remember that our world thinks itself enlightened. Not long ago, we lived in the age of enlightenment. And the idea is not that the enlightenment went out, but now we're living the beautiful fruit of the enlightenment in the modern and postmodern age, right? We are an enlightened people. And this isn't even just since the enlightenment that we think ourselves enlightened. It's the natural disposition of all of humanity as rebels against our rightful God and King, Adam and Eve thought themselves enlightened. And they looked at the tree and thought that it looked quite tasty, and so they ate of it, contrary to the light-giving law of God in the garden. Now, imagine a broken, war-torn, hostile world lost in darkness. All right, That's the, the image that is being conjured by Jesus when he speaks of, you are the light of the world, suggests that the world is in darkness. In such a world, there are clumps of people huddled together, practicing all manner of wicked deeds in the darkness, fumbling around for a place in this world. Now imagine a city on a hill. It's all lit up, shining brightly for all to see. It sounds quite beautiful in such a dark land. Surely the world would flock to the city for its radiance, right? And that's the way we tend to think about this. Is that the way it works? A lit-up city in a war-torn world is little more than an easy target. And that's the way it often plays out. And so Jesus' instruction to the disciples, hide it under a bushel. No, you're going to be tempted to. You're going to be tempted to hide it under a bushel so you're not such an easy target, not such a weirdo in a dark world. 
I'm going to let it shine. Jesus, just as Jesus has shown light into our darkened hearts, we pray that as we shine on, that he will cause some to lay down the rebellion and sin and come into the eternal city. Run to the light of the gospel that the Savior shines through his church. Let me ask again, what is the effect of having a people who have received the kingdom of God by grace, a people who long with rejoicing and gladness for our sure hope of reward in heaven. What is the effect of that people remaining on this earth? I hope that the first effect of the gospel being preached is that some in our midst would come to believe. Even this morning, that the saltiness and the light shining of the gospel this morning would call some even in this room, to faith. Say, that is a better way, and I have stumbled in darkness, and I see the decay of my own sin. And I see that the only hope is not the church, but the true light. I see that the only hope isn't being nice people like some of the nice people I've found around here, but to be transformed in repentance and belief. And I hope that the second effect is that for all who have believed, we would come to understand more clearly that our role in this world is not to enjoy our privileged status as blessed. Do you see it? It would be easy to say, ah, it's so nice to be blessed. Yes, that persecution stuff at the end of the Beatitudes, we'll ignore that for the most part and just be glad that we're the blessed people of God in his kingdom. It's no, you're the salt of the earth. You're a city on a hill filled with my light. Our role in the world is to draw up next to our communities with a preserving, enhancing effect of the gospel to make the way of the king and his kingdom known. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work this in us, that you would make us a people who are salty in our communities. And Lord, we confess that we need you We need your word. We need to be filled with the saltiness of your way and kingdom. And so would you make us attentive, particularly to the Sermon on the Mount in the coming week, that we would read on. And that, Lord, I'm sure that there are are observations that some in the congregation have already had regarding even the scripture that has been shared this morning that would take us further and deeper into an understanding of the way of your kingdom. Pray that we would share that with one another. We would be salty in our community groups and around our lunch tables. Lord, I pray that you would work in us into our neighborhoods and communities, that we would draw close to those who are far off from you with your salt and your light, the saltiness and light-giving life of your gospel. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. We trust that you'll work in us, that what you have declared to be so would be true among us. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your good name. Amen.